Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in The Martyred Christian, he said this, Our knowledge of God's will is not something over which we ourselves dispose, but it depends solely upon the grace of God, and this grace is and requires to be new every morning. That is why this proving or examining of the will of God is so serious a matter. The voice of the heart is not to be confused with the will of God, nor is any kind of inspiration or general principle for the will of God to close itself, disclose itself ever anew only to him who proves it ever anew. All right, here's the point that Bonhoeffer is trying to make is that we don't obtain God's will. This is not something that just one day, I've got it, and that you possess it forevermore. In fact, a better way of understanding how we deal with God's will is we flirt with God's will. We may land upon it in moments, but he's saying every morning, we need to seek this afresh Every morning, in fact, every moment and every day, we need to reflect and think about what God's will for us is in this moment. What I want to, I want to really get the point is it's that, you know, you have those, those things in your heart or your motives in your heart and things that speak to you or that voice in your brain. Like, he said, don't confuse that voice with the will of God. Be careful when you say, hey, God told me this. Maybe, but you have something very tangible to compare that voice to. God's written word. What is God's will? We ought to be in a daily task of discerning God's will, a momentary task of discerning God's will. And, and simply, I think a way of understanding God's will is to live wisely, that, that wisdom we get in Ecclesiastes, understanding that means to skillfully live for God, mean being in his will in every little moment. And it's not something that we obtain and something that we flirt with with all our life. And we seek it every morning. Lamentations says it in this way, Lamentations 3, 22-23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies come to an end. Never come to an end. <laughs> they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And here's why I quoted that verse. It's every morning. But his, it's like, where's the will of that? Well, it's the love of God. That is his will. You see, the will of God is the character of God. Period. If you want to know the will of God, you're going to understand the character of God. I mean, a lot of times we think of what the will is. What does God want me to do in this moment? Does he want me to do this or that? Here's the answer to that question almost all the time. What's the character of God? What's the character of God? How does he want you to behave in this moment? Is he so concerned about this task and that task instead of who you are in that task, your character? That is the will of God. One way we can seek out and understand God's will is reading his word. But that's not only. If we just read his God's will, then we go, oh, I, I comprehend. I can now understand God's will. No, no. The, the point of being in God's will is actually to do it, to embody it. We understand it through his word, but we need to live it out 
and do it. The, the purpose of God is not just to, to reveal who he is, but to begin to, to change us into his character day in and day out to be more like him, to restore that image in us. It's not just believing in Jesus. It's following Jesus. We are to be observant not just to his words, but we are to be observant and to do the actions of Jesus, to follow him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, which was Lily's favorite verse, it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your straight your paths. Did you hear that language in there? Is it just comprehension? The purpose of that is to trust in the Lord is that your behavior and actions actually look different. In all your ways, acknowledge him and so that your paths are straight, that you actually behave in a different way. Your ways, in all your ways, in all your ways, do something that acknowledge him. Let trust live out in your actions. This is doing type language. Another way of saying this concept is this. We are not consecrated or devoted to a certain task or calling. I'm going to hear that again. You are not consecrated or devoted to a certain task or calling, but you are devoted and consecrated to the will of God in your life. Period. This means you can say, but I've been called to do this. Maybe for a moment, but you know what you've really been called to do? You know who you've really been called to be? You've called to be in the will of God. You've called to be in his character. And that can be in a multitude of tasks and callings. It doesn't mean I don't want you to think, oh, that means I can just keep flipping and flopping and doing whatever. I, I, no, there's a, there's a certain wisdom in going in a certain path and keeping on to that same task and doing it well and doing it in God's wisdom. But you are not beholden to those tasks. You're beholden to the will of God, which I want you to more understand as the character of God for your life. Let's turn to the text today and flesh this out a little bit, this, this context of the will of God and his character. In John 7, 14, it says this, at the, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. Now, let's just backtrack a little bit what's happening here, right? This is the, the feast of the booths, Right? And initially, Jesus had a conversation with his brothers, and his brothers said, Hey, let's come on down. Let's recruit some more disciples for you. And Jesus says, I'm not going. It's not my time. It's not my hour to go to Jerusalem. They're about to kill me down there. Right? And so he says, I'm not going to go. And then Jesus goes incognito. He's down there, and he's hearing a lot of people talk about him. He's the, he's the, uh, the gossip of all the temple. Right? And so the temple is kind of this, there's stages of the temple, but the large part of the temple is the temple of the Gentiles where everyone gets to gather and they mingle and there's teaching in there. And so he is the gossip of the temple. And some people are saying he's a good man. And some people are saying he's a deceiver. No one is claiming that he's God. And then right now, in the middle of that, in the temple, Jesus reveals himself. Like, Ta-da! And he begins to teach in the middle of them. That is not incognito at all. That is not being kept hidden at all. He begins to teach like many rabbis would do at that time. They would all gather, they would gather their disciples and and they, right, it's a big area, and they, he, they would teach their disciples. And Jesus does the same thing. 
except he hasn't come with his disciples. He just gets up and begins to teach. In John uh, verse 15, the Jews then therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? The first thing I want you to hear is that they marveled at him. They were astonished at him. They, they were astonished at his teaching. And this is common that we hear this in John, is that when Jesus gets up to preach, people are amazed by his authority and his power, his wisdom, and what he is teaching. How does he have this knowledge? How is he connecting the dots in this way? How, is, how does he have this teaching? But more so, I want you to hear what they said. And I wish the English was translated differently, because this is what literally it's saying. How does he know his letters? How does he know his ABCs? How does he know to read or write or anything? He's never studied. This is true. This is a true fact of Jesus. In fact, I want you to understand, like, so the educational system back here, there was not public education. Not everyone got educated. There was kind of a basic education that you would do in your home, and then the brightest would get to go on, and they would uh, learn a little bit more about the Torah, and then the brightest were there, would get to go learn a little bit more. And every time that you didn't get to advance, what you did is you went back to the family trade. Whatever your family did, that's the work that you did, and you joined in. And so the brightest kept going on and on, and learning more and more, and the brightest after that, after all that, your graduate level, you would go find a rabbi, and you said, I want to know what you know, and I want to do what you do. And that rabbi would say yes or no to you. If he said no, you either have to find a different rabbi or you go back to your family trade. Now, here's the point. What do we know about Jesus? He comes from a poor family. He comes from a family of carpenters. Jesus was a carpenter, just like his brothers. Jesus has no formal training in the scriptures, in just basic language, and this is what they're saying. Like, we know this guy. He doesn't know his ABCs, but we know in Jesus, and, and when he was 12 years old in Luke, that he taught in the temple and he astonished people. Right? We know that he has some work and he studied a bit. But we also know that the, Jesus is God himself, both God and man, and that he has understanding. And so this is what they're marveling at. He doesn't know his ABCs. They don't attack his teaching. I want you to hear that. They don't attack what he's teaching. They attack his credentials. They attack who he is. He's not qualified to be a rabbi. He's not qualified to have disciples. He doesn't have the proper learning. He doesn't have the proper training. Stop listening to Jesus. Listen to us. It goes on in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, here's an important fact. I want you to hear this very clearly. When I preach and teach, I am not teaching in the place of God. You all understand that, right? I am not God. I am not Jesus, right? It's not, I'm not teaching in his place, but I am trained. I have studied. I do work throughout the week to try to figure out what God is saying in his words. I am fallible. You, you do know that, right? I, I know it doesn't seem like that all the time, but I make mistakes, right? Here's the, if you have a question or concern with something I have said, please follow up with me. I want you to follow up because there's lots of things that could be the case. Number one, I could be wrong. 
It's possible. In fact, that's probably the most likely scenario if you need to follow up with me. I'm wrong. The other thing is maybe I misspoke. That's quite possible too. I misspeak all the time. The other thing is maybe you misheard, and so we just need to clarify what I said and what you heard, and we just need to communicate better, right? Because this is a, a two-way street. The other last possibility is I could actually be right, and so we could actually talk about that. But the, the point is, is I want you to come talk to me. If you have a question or concern, right, this is a, this is a fallible endeavor that we are doing. I want us to come to a greater understanding of God's word together, and I want us to communicate that. And some of you that have come to me know that I have admit mistakes or I have clarified or not. So I'm encouraging you to do that. Jesus is saying, right, clearly, he says, my teaching is not from my study. It's not from human wisdom or passed down from human tradition. So typically a rabbi, right, there's all these uh, uh, traditions and actually these books written on this that they would have these sense kind of commentaries or explanations of what the scriptures are saying. We have these today as well. And so the rabbis would fall under a tradition of interpretation. And so they would follow that and make sure they are along that. I do similar something. When I, when I come to a text every Sunday, or before that, when I, during the week, I look at the text and I wrestle with it. I try to understand it. I, I look at the languages and see if there's anything I need to worry about, like the ABCs this week, which I just thought was funny. You apparently did not. And so I, I look at those things, and I just I examine them, and I try to, what is, what is God trying to say in here? What is, what is the text trying to say? And then how can I actually apply that to our lives, and how could I bring it into modern day? Now, after I do that, I actually then check multitude of commentaries to just make sure that I haven't gone crazy and that I am not way off. And if I have a, a different understanding or a different, it doesn't mean I'm wrong, but I usually I have to like, wait a second. How have I understood this that all these other people have not understood it? And where do I need to re-examine that? That very rarely happens that I have a new understanding of a text. I almost always I fall in line, and then I'll alter to make sure I do fall in line into the basic understanding of what the text is. That's essentially what the rabbis do. We're going to fall under a tradition, under interpretation, under a history of understanding. But Jesus is saying something different. He's saying, look at all of this is from God himself. My teaching is the Father's teaching. I am God itself. And then he gives, like, okay, maybe you don't believe this. I have, a, I have a test for you to discern whether this is from God or from humans. And what way we can compare this authority where I am actually getting my teaching from. And he goes on in verse 17 through 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So part of this first test is Jesus says, okay, don't just look at my teaching. Look at my works. Look at how I live my life. That's one way to begin to understand if his teaching is off. Meaning you can look at someone, oh, they teach all the right things, but if their actions are off, you begin to question their teaching as well too. What's off about that? And Jesus is saying, look at how I live my life and look at my works and my actions. Right? So th the rabbis were not just teachers of information. 
When you went to follow a rabbi, it wasn't just, I want to know what you know. I want to do what you do. I want to live the way you do. And the rabbi would say, yeah, you can know what I know and you can do what I do. And since Jesus falls in that rabbinic tradition, when he calls his disciples, when he calls his 12, by the way, his 12, they were uneducated too. They were not qualified to be any kind of part of this educational system that they had. And Jesus calls them and says, listen, you can know what I know and you can do what I do. You can can follow me, which would have been a great privilege at that time. Being a pastor at this time is a great privilege, but it doesn't have much honor in our society. Back then, being a rabbi or following a rabbi would have been a huge honor in that. Jesus even references his relationship to Father. He says, he doesn't just know what his Father knows. I don't just know what the Father, it's not just information I'm downloading. I actually do what the Father does. What he does, I do. John 5, 19, we've learned this before. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only sees what the Father doing. For whether the Father does, the Son does likewise. Like, so he's saying, I'm in the embodiment of what the Father does. What I do is what the Father does. You want to understand what the Father does? You actually look at what I do. This is something that Jesus did. So the question we have is, are, are you willing to obey and follow? Jesus said, if you're willing to obey and follow, then you only and then will you believe in me. You can't just say, I believe in you, Jesus, and I believe what you say. You actually have to follow what he does. That's the point of what God is doing for us. He doesn't want it just to obtain faith and trust in him, but faith and trust are always enacted to live out and follow. Our salvation is not just an assertion of a certain knowledge, but it's a actually transformation of our character that's lived out in actions. And he's already told you that your faith is not morally achieved by you. Right? We know this. I don't want you to confuse the gospel. It's not by certain intellectual activity that you earn your faith or that certain actions and that you earn your salvation. No, we already know that he says faith is a gift. It is my act upon you. And he says this in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father sent me, who sent me draws him. And I will raise up on the last day. No one can believe in me. No one can do what I do unless the Father has called that person, given that person that ability to come and understand, to believe, and to do what I do. Jesus says, if you're committed to God's will, then you will follow me. And when you follow me, that's actually when you will live out your faith then you will actually believe. You and I are not just called to be believers. We are called to be followers of Jesus. Jesus' teaching and his way are a demonstration of God's will in which we are to live out. The will of God is the character of God. It's what he does and why he does it. You want to be in God's will? The answer is yes. Then do what he does. Follow him. Do what he does. Is that, am I I saying that you should die on the cross? No, no, no. Be his character. Live out his character. 
Seek his character anew every morning and live that character out new every morning. Jesus goes on and gives further a test to show that his teaching is from God and has more authority than the teaching of the rabbis and everyone else. And he gives this test, in a sense, is watch our actions. Watch what we do. Not just what we teach, but what we do. See my motives. No, understand why I do the things that I do them and understand the things that I do it. And I want you to understand why they do the things they do and what do they do. This is the test he's giving people. It's a stark contrast in which you're going to see in just a moment. The first thing right, we know in verse 18 is Jesus doesn't seek his own glory. He's quite clear. And John's like, I'm not seeking my glory. I am seeking the glory of the Father. Every action I do, I want to be subservient to the Father. All these other rabbis, whose glory do they seek? They may say they're seeking the glory of God, but they're actually wanting the glory for themselves. Jesus is not looking for praise and honor just like the rest of everyone else is. That's true humility compared to a false humility. And then he goes on to compare the character of him to everyone else in verses 19 through 23. Watch this carefully. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? All right, so Moses, it says Moses gave you the law. And you don't even keep the law. Moses, through God, God, through Moses, gave the law. People gave the Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments is, you shall not murder. And he says, you, over here, they want to murder me. Now, is that common knowledge? That is not actually public knowledge until the moment Jesus puts it out. All we have heard in the text is Jesus understood their intention of their hearts that they want to murder, that they have quietly talked among themselves earlier in John that they want to murder him because of his, what he's claiming, who he's claiming to be, and his public notoriety. Jesus is outing them in their public thoughts. He's telling everyone, they want to murder me. You've been given the law. You know the character of God. It's not to murder. And yet these people who are teachers of the law, they want to murder. They want to murder me. And it goes on. And the crowd, the crowd answers in verse 20. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Right, they're very defensive. And the first thing they say is, that's not true. We're not seeking to kill you to deny the whole thing. And then what does someone who denies the whole thing, what do they normally do in our world today? They name call. It's because ad hominem attack. And he's a demon. We don't want to kill. Right? Someone is going against you. This happens in politics all the time. Right? We're not going to actually argue our position. We're going to just name call. Not a great way. Shows the character of the person name calling instead of who they're actually calling. You have a demon. It's defensive. They deny and deflect. Here's the thing. I mean, if you're going to be led by someone who is defensive, who denies, who deflects, those are all things that should put red flags up in your mind. What's wrong with the character of that person? 
whether the thing is true or not, that they have to deny it, deflect, and defensive. And you, could, you see the difference in something. It, it is okay to actually defend yourself, but ought to do it very humbly. You ought to not name call someone else in that matter. So if you see someone do that, you make, what is, what is their teaching? How are they behave in that way? It's likewise, when I, when I told you I want you to come to me, I want you to hold me accountable to not be defensive with you. If I am initially defensive with your question, you need to call me out on that. And correct my behavior. Because I don't want to, I, could, like, I told you the last possible thing when you call me out and have a concern about something I said, I actually could be right. Right? But we got to get there first. And I don't want to be that my first position, like, man, let's examine that. Or, hey, this is actually how I got to that. Does that make sense? Or maybe I misspoke and you misheard. Like, those are the things. I don't want to be defensive. Now, I know I can be defensive. If I don't have the information and you call me out it, I might be defensive on that. Call me out on that. Call me out on that. Demon possession. This is a common claim that they give to Jesus. He's demon possessed. And really, it's also a common claim. They said it in John 10, 20. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Like basically just saying he's crazy. He's demon possessed. Just throwing everything out at Jesus. Like, don't follow him. Don't pay attention to his actions. And don't pay attention to his demons. He's a little bit loony. Here's what I want you to hear clearly, though. Insanity is not, or, or mental illness, is not always demon possession. It might not even usually. It could be. I think, as a general, our society doesn't think about uh, spiritual warfare uh, and I think we ought to think more about that because the spiritual and physical are never separated. But I want to be clear that uh, I don't always assume as someone who has mental illness or mental struggling with something that they have demon possession. It's usually not the first thing I think about. It could be something that we think about later on. But in general, I just want you to understand that. Don't think about that. In verse 21, Jesus answers, I did one work. And you all marveled. You're calling me a demon. I did one work and you all marveled at it. The last time Jesus was teaching in the temple was in John 5. And when he was teaching in the temple, he did one work outside the temple before that. And you know what that one work was? He healed a paralyzed man who was paralyzed for 38 years, who for 38 years sat by the pool of Bethesda, thinking that pool, if he was the first one to get in, that he would be healed. Never could be the first one because he was paralyzed. And Jesus healed him by his words on the Sabbath. And so the Jews saw the man later on the day on the Sabbath, walking and picking up his mat. They saw him on the Sabbath, and they were upset. Why are you walking and picking up your mat on the Sabbath? Picking up your mat is not acceptable behavior on the Sabbath. They're not, they weren't initially upset with Jesus. They were initially upset with man walking and picking up the mat. For who hasn't walked for 38 years? And then they confront Jesus, who was teaching in the temple at that time. What did you do? Why did you do that? How did you dare do you heal him on the Sabbath? Goes on in verse 22. Moses, Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but it's from the fathers, particularly through Abraham. But Moses has laws about it. And your circumcision, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? 
So I just want you to, that the circumcision law was given that when a child was born, a male child, that on the eighth day after the birth, you circumcise that child. That's the law. But they also have this law that you can't do all these things on the Sabbath. You can't do ordinary work on the Sabbath. So the letter of the law would seem that those two laws contradict. But they all understood the intent of the law. And they all understood that there were acts of mercy allowed always on the Sabbath, even for animals, acts of mercy on the Sabbath. And so they would put together, they lived out the intent of the law. So here's the thing about babies, right? They're just born on random days. You can't always predict that the baby's eighth day won't land on the Sabbath. And so whenever they had babies, they would circumcise that baby on the eighth day. And that would not violate the intent of the law. Maybe the letter, but not the intent. Jesus is like, you understand this. You understand the intent of the law on what it's supposed to do. More so, the, the act of circumcision is actually a, a, a perfecting rite in their minds. It is perfecting the outward body of the male, making them more into the covenant image of God for people. Now, what does Jesus do on the Sabbath with his words? He heals a man in his whole body that hasn't been healed in 38 years, been suffering, that no one's paid attention to. And he says, you're holding me to the letter of the law when you live out on the intent of the law on this minor issue. I perfected the whole man's body. And you are trying to hold me to the letter of law, which we already know the law allows mercy Always. Always. Why does the law allow mercy? Because the law is the character of God. It is the will of God. Mercy is always allowed. Grace is always allowed on any day and any moment. It's the character of God. And Jesus said, look at you people are living like, hey, I, we can live in the intent of the law, but this man has to live to the letter of law, even though his actions are greater. Healing a whole man's body is greater than circumcision. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, all those things, definitely emotionally. Jesus is the perfecter of all bodies. Jesus understanding and making this claim, I healed this man and you're holding me on account of my mercy. Here's the thing. Jesus is the author of the law. It, the law is not something that's outside of Jesus. I told you the law is his character. It is, it is who he is. Everything that Jesus does is the law. He's the author. He's the one that, that with the spirit spoke it out the father these are not contradiction to it it is his character the law is god's character the will of god is the character of god the law therefore is god's will so jesus is saying to all the people i've just given you a test here's my authority do you see the difference in our actions do you see the difference in how we actually engage the law and the character of God? They're not in the character of the law. They're not in the character of God. I am. I am. That's how you discern. Jesus is saying, is follow me. 
not just my teaching, follow me. Follow my character. Jesus' character is abundant grace, abundant mercy. Jesus is saying, and my will is abundant love and abundant mercy for all. I've been walking through the, uh, the high school kids through uh, the Shorter Catechism, and we got to the, uh, the theological discussion about creation. And so the, the, the seven days of creation, and a great way, the, the most best way of thinking about the seven days of creation, why God is explaining to us in seven days is, I, I told them clearly, God can and may have created everything in six literal days. Good. Maybe he didn't. I'm not, I don't really have an opinion about that because I don't even think that's the most important thing about that text. The most important thing about that text is the alignment of the days, right? What was created in day one are things to be ruled, and day four, the things of the sun and moon are created to rule the light, the luminaries. The things that are created in day five is created to rule days two, all these things. So there's kings and there's kingdoms. That's not really the point. The point is, in those six days, it actually says the first six days, there's morning and there's night. End of day. Do you know on the seventh day, it doesn't say that? How fascinating. It doesn't say that on the seventh day. What is that trying to say to us? What, what's really happening here is the, God rested on the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day from all his creation. And there's no end to that day. And what happens next after God rested? Humans sinned, interrupted his rest. And all the rest of Scripture from that verse on until the very end is God working again in trying to recreate humanity and all of creation back so they can enter his rest. The very end of the story is that everyone begins to enter into the true Sabbath. In many ways, you can think the seventh day never ends. That we're all constantly in the seventh day, but we're never resting. And God is trying to bring us back into that rest. I think that's really the theological framework of what Genesis 1 is setting us up to understand the whole rest of Scripture. Actually, Genesis part of 2, because the seventh day is in Genesis 2, just in case you didn't know I didn't know that, and call me out on that later. (laughs) In that, though, how does God act in the seventh day? With abundant grace and abundant mercy throughout all of the rest of Scripture. Abundant grace and abundant mercy. This is his character. This is his will. How do the Jews, the religious authorities, act? They act with limited and no mercy. Worse than that, they want to kill Jesus. They want to murder him. That would be the quite opposite of grace and mercy. This is the test. Do you want to be in that character and follow their teaching? Or do you want to be in the character of the God who has abundant mercy and grace and follow his teaching? Jesus is, is test our actions. Look at our actions. Follow us and see who has authority, who has learning. Jesus says to believe me is to watch me and to follow me. I am radically different than the world. 
the world wants to murder and harm. The world is full of fear and death. I'm full of abundant life. I'm a full of abundant love. I give grace, I give love, and I give life. Studies have shown that, you know, children hold on to their faith by watching their parents, not by actually listening to what their parents believe. Meaning they observe the actions of parents. And we know as parents that we falter all the time. That we falter. It's one one of the reasons why I actually want to include children in in our activities and our worship because I want them to learn to worship by watching us. Not by one day being plugged in and say, hey, worship God. And like, I don't know how to do this. I want us to watch us and to live us out. I want, I want my kids to understand that I, I try, I seek to live by grace and mercy and to be just, to seek kindness in life. I seek to live God's righteousness in life, which is his justice and it matters. And when I don't and when I fail to do, that I'm consistent in a life that lives out repentance. That will not be defensive, that will acknowledge it. And that means that's a daily activity. And that I will be consistent in what we, we preached about a month ago, about living out restorative love. In a sense, repenting for people that can't repent. Jesus' argument is that have an honest evaluation of my life. And my life is a reason to believe in me compared to their life and to their teaching. Seeing the way Jesus lives is the reason to say, oh, he's more than human. That's not, how, that's not how a normal human lives. There's something different about him. And then you'll begin to understand that he is God and he is divine as he claims to be. And he is God in the flesh. Jesus doesn't just obey the law. He is the law. And he demonstrated it with every action and every word of his life. He demonstrates the royal law of love with every moment and every breath and every word that's in this book. This is the will of God for us to follow him day in and day out seeking afresh every morning his will for us. What's his character and how do you want me to live that out today, Lord? Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus and learn the ABCs of love? Or will you follow the legalism and the hypocrisy of this world? Let's pray. Gracious Father, loving Son and guiding Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are one God that is present with us all the time that you are a God that uh, doesn't just speak truth in our life, that lives out that truth. That you are a God that, that draws us into your word and draws us into your character to live out. That you are not done with us. That you are working in us, for us, and through us. Lord, help us each and every morning, in each and every moment, to, to wake us up to your presence and to your law and to your character, to your will, 
Help us to see how we can live that out and how are you transforming us to be more like you each and every day. Lord, help us to follow you. We give you praise for this grace and for this good news. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Amen.